if any JMU fans weren't already thrilled about being in the Sunbelt Conference, how about the entire athletic department being undefeated as members of the SBC? Sure, only the women's soccer teams played any matches. They're 1-0 and 1, but a pair of impressive shutouts. And it's going to get a little harder because we're about to start up with a lot of other sports and the challenges are going to be greater. But obviously, that's an awesome start to the fall for the Dukes. As you listen to another episode of the Purple and Bold podcast here from the Daily News Record, I'm Shane Metlin. I'm solo today. Noah Fleischman was not feeling very well, but going to jump into some uh, JMU sports related stuff. As I hinted, were started with actual competition, and it was pretty impressive for the Dukes on the soccer pitch, women's soccer. They got shutouts against Moorhead State and VCU. VCU ended in a scoreless tie, but that's a pretty impressive start to the season for them because VCU is a very good program that really just kind of dominated the uh, Atlantic 10 last year until the very end where they lost a couple of games uh, to end the regular season and early in the Atlantic 10 tournament, but they're expected to be a really good program. Uh, JMU holding them scoreless, getting a tie, getting a draw with that one. That is a good start to the season for those Dukes. Uh, field hockey is getting started here in a couple days. They're playing on Friday. High expectations for that team. Um, you know, that group... Um, is not in the Sun Belt. One of the few teams uh, JMU has that is going at it um, on their own. They're, they're the only team going on independent. Um, there's, you know, have affiliate memberships and stuff, lacrosse does. But uh, independent schedule for the field hockey team before, hopefully, I think everybody kind of feels like the Sun Belt is on the verge of adding field hockey here in the next few years but just wasn't ready to do it yet. So JMU's playing an independent schedule. They're going to try to make it to the NCAA tournament in that sport on their own. And they've got the schedule set up to do it. They get started on Friday against Richmond. They've got a ton of really good players coming back on that team um, and added a goalie who started for the under-21 Dutch national team. Well, if you follow field hockey at all, you know that that is a big time accomplishment to be on the Dutch national team. Uh, it's where, you know, the sport is probably played the best. So in the Netherlands, so, you know, you're looking at, you know, high expectations for JMU field hockey, though they will have to do it against a really tough schedule with a lot of road games. Um, so they're getting started. Volleyball gets started this weekend. They're at home. They're at Godwin Hall uh, in their own in their own uh, invitational tournament. They get started on Friday. I think I'm going to go out and watch them play Saturday morning, perhaps. Um, they've got you know really high expectations. They're supposed to be one of the top you know three or four teams, maybe one of the top two teams in the Sun Belt. And the Sun Belt is a pretty solid volleyball league. So we're looking at a lot of things getting started here before. But I know. Also, what everybody else is really excited about is that we're just, you know, a little more than a week away. We're a week and a half away from the start of JMU football. And that debut in the Sun Belt with uh, Middle Tennessee State coming to town, 
the first, you know, real FBS game at Bridge Four Stadium between two FBS programs. It's, you know, probably one of the most exciting times in the history of JMU sports, really, here in these next couple of weeks as JMU gets started on a new era of their athletic department. And, you know, like I said, it's happening all over campus, not just at Bridge Four Stadium. Um, looking forward to seeing a lot of these teams play, but more and more curiosity about where the football team stands as we get a little bit closer to game day and not just curiosity, but also, you know, maybe like a little bit of nervousness. I don't know if anxiety, I don't know if people feel that like really not knowing what to expect from JMU on the gridiron as opposed to other years where the expectations were not just that, you know, we hope Jamie win. It was that they better win or else kind of, you know, from the fan perspective, uh, needing those victories. And so if you look at it this way, you know, I could see JMU finishing anywhere between winning seven or eight games to winning just a couple of games. And, you know, it's kind of hard to guess at this point. A lot of it swings on what they get from a few position groups. We've talked about this over and over again, what they get from a few position groups where there's question marks, and, you know, we're kind of just looking at it as what might happen because we're really not sure. I know, uh, you know, Noah's, I was out of town for a few days, but Noah's been at practices and stuff. And sounds like, you know, maybe it's like the tensions are getting a little higher too. Like, you know, Kurt Signetti is like maybe getting a little bit more tired of like uh, having to come deal with the media and stuff. And, you know, maybe a little folk needing to focus on his own team a little bit more um, looking at that as a chore, but you know, we really haven't seen very much. We don't see a lot when it comes to the scrimmages and, you know, real nitty gritties of practice. So there's a lot we're waiting to see and, you know, we'll kind of get into what the biggest question marks going into that, you know, week one game against middle Tennessee state might be. You know, I mentioned it to somebody else yesterday that, you know, Jamie looks really good. They have a lot of talent, a lot of depth, and a lot of spots. Um, they're going to be really good at some of the things that they do. But the question marks are the areas where they could potentially lose you games. And I think that might be where some of the stress is coming from is, you know, not knowing exactly what you got at cornerback, um, especially as you get ready to go against a team that likes to throw it all over the field, Middle Tennessee State. Um, and you're also going to see that a lot in the Sun Belt um, when you get in the conference play. So that's a big question mark is, you know, what you have at cornerback there. You know, if guys like, you know, Antoine Booth and Nakai Meredith, they're come in uh, a little bit late. They weren't here for spring ball. You know, they're obvious talents. They've got a little bit of, you know, FCS experience coming from Power 5 programs. Uh, how much are they going to be ready to help you right away? You might be relying on some young young players without much experience at cornerback, and you know they get put to the test right away. You don't ease in with you know the Norfolk State game just kick it off. You got that week two where you might have some opportunities to like really kind of correct things after Middle Tennessee State, but that's a big question. I also have you know serious questions about who's going to kick field goals and extra points. Will they be able to make them? Will you? leave points on the field because you can't afford that at this level anymore the way they did, you know, 
for the most part last year, you know, we talked about leaving points on the field and it wasn't that they weren't making field goals, but maybe they were willing to settle for field goals because they had an automatic kicker and Ethan Radke um, maybe didn't want to open up the playbook too much before the FCS playoffs. Um, didn't get too creative in the red zone at certain points during the season and would really just settle for field goals because they knew they were going to get points basically every time they had the ball, even if it wasn't six or seven points and they were going to win games that way. I am very curious, like, what's going to happen with the field goal kicking unit without Ethan Ratke, uh, you know, had guys, you know, have been hurt at different times. We haven't seen anything in that regard. We, they didn't show any of that to us in the spring game. Um, <clears throat> we don't see that, you know, that ha- stuff happens after they kick us out of practice. Um, so the first place kicking we see against middle Tennessee state will be the first place kicking really anybody outside the program has seen from JMU um, since the North Dakota state game. And so, you know, since Ethan Racky was out there, that's a big question mark to me. So those are two things like, you know, you can't afford to give up gift touchdowns to good teams and you can't afford to not have solid drives end in points because you don't have the place kicking you can be really, really good other places on the field. And if that is what happens with you, you can still be in big trouble if you're JMU. And, you know, for the most part, I think you got to give the coaching staff, you got to give the players, you got to give just the program the way it's built the benefit of the doubt. They've done well historically against FCS teams. I think they're going to be ready to go. I think they're going to play probably to their best ability against Middle Tennessee State. Obviously, that's going to be an incredible atmosphere for a night game that's already really close to sold out. Only, you know, a few tickets up in the upper corners available if you look online, um, start trying to select a seat on the JMU ticket website. So I don't think, you know, being ready mentally or um, prepared is too much of a concern for these early games, but it just, you know, do kind of wonder about the personnel in a few spots for JMU right now. Uh, it'll be very interesting to see. Um, like I said, I think you give Kurt Signetti and his staff the benefit of the doubt for the most part, because they've always found that next man up. You can only go back to the playoffs last year where they're replacing offensive linemen at the very last minute, putting a freshman center, uh, in the you know putting a freshman center in the starting lineup right before the playoffs he he does it masterfully has a great has a great you know postseason is you know seems like he's probably in line to hold on to that job here to start this season um and you know it's kind of a way to transition into like looking at the offensive and defensive lines where jbu seems to have a lot of depth and i think it speaks to their FBS readiness from last year to this year that you look at the offensive line and it's quite possibly going to be the same guys that take the field to start the middle Tennessee game that were on the field when they ended the North Dakota state game. They've got, you know, some impressive transfers, you know, Andrew Adair uh, was one of them coming from Liberty and, you know, those guys didn't necessarily just like automatically jump into the starting lineup into the first string. Uh, I think that says something about where, you know, uh, JMU was 
in their readiness to make this FBS jump. Uh, Isaac Owusu Apia is another guy. I you know just failed to mention when I was talking about the transfers coming in from Coastal Carolina. Played, uh, got some playing time at Coastal Carolina. Um, one of those guys where you see the in-state players who left to go play FBS, then hit the transfer portal when they come back to Virginia, and they're choosing JMU because you know JMU is an FBS option. Um, now, and then you look at across the recruiting trail, um, what they've been doing, you know, with a lot of the pickups they've had, pl- recruiting very well in Virginia and Pennsylvania, and really lately, and especially in South Carolina, uh, kind of a door that opened to them when they joined the Sun Belt. I think you look at the long term future of JMU, and there's like not much to worry about. The question marks are really just about this immediate readiness for these first few games. Um, because, you know, you really look at it. They start with Middle Tennessee State. Jamie is a seven-point, somewhere in that uh, ballpark, seven-point favorite to win that game. Um, but that's, you know, probably... You could look at it as being close to a toss-up. And, you know, if you're Jamie, if you lose that one, you're going to turn around, you're going to take care of business against North, Norfolk State. But then you have, you know, possibly your toughest game of the season going on the road to Appalachian State. And, you know, starting one and two is not something anybody associated with JMU is really accustomed to or uh, expecting or knows quite how to handle. So this opening as Middle Tennessee State turns into, you know, really an important game to kind of set the tone, um, get your feet wet, figure out what exactly you have, the depth that you have, um, everything because you just kind of look at it and it's going to be it's going to be a bigger challenge all year round than you've ever faced before and so you get into that you know you really kind of just want to see what exactly JMU has when they get started in the season of course talking about the challenge of this schedule can kind of lead me into the other big topic of this week for JMU football is getting a glance of what the future schedules look like. More than a glance, it's set for the next two years. Uh, other than not knowing who their uh, division, Sunbelt cross-divisional opponents, we don't know who they're going to play in the Sunbelt West. But other than that, they know who they're playing for the next two years, which has been a big thing to try to get those FBS uh, schedule set, um, especially where you're looking at potential bowl eligibility here in the next couple of years. Um, so those games were very important. And they know we'll go through, like, they've got some uh, games on the schedule now through, like, 2034, which, as, you know, Kurt Dudley, uh, the esteemed JMU broadcaster, pointed out yesterday on his Twitter you're talking about, you know, some kids who are in first grade now could possibly be playing in that game against Liberty in 2034, if it even uh, happens, you know, because things can change a lot in more than a decade. But, you know, they, they've got that um, on the schedule now with, you know, a home-and-home series with Liberty that replaces what was going to be um, a JMU trip to Lynchburg um, now it's going to be a home and home. Uh, it's just pushed back to 
much later dates because that was going to be in a few years from now. But with Liberty getting ready to join Conference USA and step away from independent schedule, they had to make a lot of changes. So that's why you're seeing that from Liberty. But well, we, let's run through the next two years for JMU. Because this is a big, you know, you're looking at 2023. Their non-conference schedule is going to be hosting Bucknell, traveling to Virginia, which is, you know, obviously something we've talked about on here. Um, something that the JMU fans and players and everybody else is literally looking forward to getting another chance at the Cavaliers, which that game has not been played in about 40 years now. Uh, that was in the early 80s, last time JMU played UVA and won. So it's another trip to Charlottesville for JMU. And, you know, I might be the only one uh, who was alive <laughs> last time JMU played there. That's uh, associated with the Dukes at all. So, you know, it's a, it'll be a fun one. They go to Miami of Ohio. Then a couple weeks later, and then they have an, a non-con game that will come in November, late this season, with UConn coming to JMU. And in the 2024 season, they've got a game going to Charlotte. They play Gardner-Webb at Bridgeport Stadium, play at North Carolina, so another Power 5 opponent, and then play host of Ball State. So for the next two years, they've got their schedules set and they're going to be trying to make their debut bowl appearance with that so you look at these schedules and you you know first thing you want to do if you're a jmu fan is okay how does jmu get to six wins to be bowl eligible um you know can they win on the road against power five teams if they can you can't count on that uh virginia with the new coaching staff you know maybe this was the year uh jmu would have preferred to get virginia with a brand new coaching staff although they do have a fantastic quarterback and Brent Armstrong. Um, but, you know, G- Virginia should be in a little bit more solid spot as a program by next year compared to where they were even this year. Um, so playing in Charlottesville is going to be a challenge, but they also you got to look at the fact that that's probably going to be, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if the crowd for that one is almost split 50-50, you know, or 60-40 in, J- in um, UVA's favor, but it's not going to be uh, <clears throat> just based on, you know, the way these teams have sold tickets, the enthusiasm around both programs, the way it's trending. I think when JMU goes to Charlottesville, there's going to be a whole lot of purple in Scott Stadium. And, you know, an opportunity for JMU to do something pretty big for their program if they can get a win on the road there. Um, but you look at the other three games, they should absolutely beat Bucknell at home. Um, you know, Miami is a winnable FBS road game. Miami of Ohio and out of the MAC. Um, and UConn has been just absolutely terrible. You got to think, you know, they feel pretty good about getting them at home. If they can get three to four non-conference wins, you got to feel really good already about where they are as far as uh, bowl eligibility in their first year of bowl eligibility in 2023. So that's interesting to look at the schedule that way. And, you know, other factor about that is my first instinct when I saw Bucknell on the schedule was, to think back to the old Patriot League days where um, Bucknell, even as, as an FCS team that previously, before a few years ago, had not offered um, football scholarships, that might not have counted actually as a um, win towards bowl eligibility. But th- it is important to note that um, the Patriot League and Bucknell, they are able to offer 60 
scholarships now. The FCS limit is 63. So you look at that, and it is a situation where um, the rule there is if the program offers not, or has 90% of the FCS limit of scholarships on their roster, then they can count towards bowl eligibility. So scheduling an Ivy League team doesn't do anything for Jamie's bowl eligibility. You're not going to see you know, Princeton or Yale or somebody come into um, Bridgeport Stadium for that reason. But this Bucknell game should count unless, you know, something unforeseen they, if Bucknell has any, you know, major issues with their scholarship things. But Bucknell should count towards bowl eligibility, which is not something you could have said about the Patriot League just a few years ago. And so <clears throat> that's probably worth noting as you look at this future schedule, especially in JMU's first year of trying to get to a bowl game next year. You look at 2024, <clears throat> I think the first thing everybody noticed was that they go to play on the road in the state of North Carolina in, in the non-conference. They do that twice in that season. And if you look at where JMU is recruiting very heavily right now, it is in the Carolinas. North Carolina has always been one, but they're really pushing and doing well in South Carolina right now. So a game at Charlotte, you know, you go down there, you're probably going to invite some of those kids from South Carolina and there's certainly North Carolina that you've been recruiting. You're going to tell them, Hey, why don't you come over? You know, we've got 400 tickets to distribute, you know, we'll get you in the door and they're going to go down there and potentially see how well JMU fans travel, potentially see JMU beat what would be then an American athletic conference team in Charlotte, if they can go down there and take care of business. So you look at, um, you know, JMU setting up the home and home with Charlotte. That makes a lot of sense for JMU perspective based on what they want to do in recruiting and, you know, uh, stimulating their fan base because, they, you know, that Charlotte area, the Raleigh area, that's still, that's another area. It's not the number one area for JMU alums, but there are a lot of JMU people down in North Carolina. So you look at the schedule in that regard, you can see how that really kind of um, plays into what Jamie's trying to do as they build up their program at the FCS level. You know, looking further into the, I won't get into a huge in-depth into these ones that are years down the road, but you know, you look at 2025 season, they've got two games already set. Norfolk State coming to Bridgeforth again uh, in that one, and they're going to Blacksburg to take on Virginia Tech. And everything we said about the UVA game, essentially applies to the Virginia Tech game, although it hasn't been four decades since they beat Virginia Tech, since they played and beat Virginia Tech. That one's a little more fresh in everyone's mind. Um, it's another situation where JMU struggled to get the Hokies back on the schedule after winning in Blacksburg last time they played. So <clears throat> JMU as an FBS team is a, certainly more appealing to those in-state ACC teams. And that's why, you know, you're getting that game on there. Um, I, I've asked also, I should first point out, I've asked for the contracts of all these games to try to find out what the paydays are for JMU for, you know, any of these, you know, major road games that are going to play. Uh, hopefully have that information, you know, by next week, hopefully. Um, can talk a little bit more about that because that's obviously another big thing for the athletic department is how much revenue they're generating to go play on the road at UVA at Maryland at uh, North Carolina and um, 
yeah, that kind of gets us into like the following years. They play, they go return game to at UConn in two twenty six, uh, Miami, Ohio, uh, making their return game to Bridgeport Stadium uh, that season too. Uh, of note, those UCon- both the UConn games um, are set for November in both twenty twenty three and twenty twenty six. So that's going to be. Um, you know, Jamie mixing it up with a little non-con action late in the season. Um, it's a team, a program that's really struggled. So if you're looking at JMU, if you're looking at, uh, we're really trying to make that last push to get bowl eligibility or um, move up the bowl ranks with another victory. Um, <clears throat> those UConn games late could be pretty interesting in that regard as JMU, you know, has a different kind of postseason now than they did as an FCS team. Uh, 2027, uh, going to Maryland, that's one that we really didn't know anything about until it was released um, this week. Um, so that's a series. You know, all those JMU alums in the Washington, D.C. area basically get a game right in their backyard. Um, take the Metro to College Park, however you want to do it, or, you know, try to find some tailgating. But that'll be a fun one for JMU. Um, another game against an FBS program that's you know, solid, but not necessarily a powerhouse. And if you can beat a Big Ten team on the road, even better for for a program like JMU for the Sun Belt Conference. If you can, you know, win those kinds of games that, you know, nobody's expecting you to win necessarily, but it's also not unfathomable to look at that. Another trip to North Carolina, twenty twenty eight, Charlotte with their return game to JMU in twenty twenty nine, and then to hit on it a little bit, the Liberty Series got pushed back to being a home-and-home home. in 2033, JMU goes to Lynchburg. 2034, Liberty comes up to Harrisonburg. Uh, <clears throat> it should be a fun series. You know, lots of lots of banter between those fan bases online already, even though they haven't played in a while and won't play again for a while. But, um, you know, obviously in-state opponent, that that's a big one. That should be really fun for everyone involved with both programs and um, <clears throat> interesting one with that one. Like I said before, Liberty had to adjust a lot of their schedules. I didn't envy whoever it was that was in charge of, you know, putting together their future football schedules because after working very hard to put together independent schedules as an independent team, now they're joining conference USA. They had to kind of scrap all that, rework everything, find, <clears throat> Find new games, be able to play a Conference USA schedule. So if you look at um, that home-and-home home for JMU, that's one of the few contracts we do already have our hands on um, from this new announcement is – I did find it – one interesting aspect of that is the typical – the standard buyout for if either of those games has to be canceled. If you know JMU just has to say, like, oh, we got another opportunity or whatever, like we're not going to come play – it's $100,000 to get out of that. But there is a clause in the contract that if one of those teams cancels it because they're changing conferences, the buyout then becomes $500,000, which I found pretty interesting because I don't. I think JMU has every intention of still being a member of the Sunbelt Conference uh, in the 2030s, but um, is that put in there because... You know, Liberty might be looking at an eventual move out of Conference USA. Is that a stopgap for them as they try to find a better conference home like JMU 
has found, like ODU has found in the Sun Belt. Uh, I found that pretty interesting because, you know, Jamie or Liberty already has, you know, had to deal with those too, like of canceling certain games because of their move into a conference. So interesting that Jamie would get that put in there to possibly, you know, be compensated if we see another move out of Liberty. It seems like that's obviously something that's on people's minds in these athletic departments as they move forward and look to the future. Um, ahead in the 2020s and beyond. So that's a look at what JMU's got coming up on those football football schedules. I know that's something everybody had been wondering, especially for 2023, you know, just who they were going to get, how they were going to get their, you know, minimum number of home games to everything that they needed to potentially be bowl eligible next season. And, you know, see a different kind of postseason for JMU football. You know, right now you they're living on the excitement of FBS and uh, what this regular season is going to bring. They're going to play 11 games, but there's no um, hope for bowl eligibility this year. They can't play in the Sun Belt Championship game as a transitioning team. But by 2023, they hope the transition is done. They hope they're in FBS for the as a full member of FBS and ready for those bowl games so seeing that schedule for 2024 i think it's probably like a little bit of a sigh of relief for everyone involved with jmu that that is done and <clears throat> locked in and speaking of locked in i have not necessarily been locked in for this podcast I'm trying to do it on my own but i think we did cover uh some of the important stuff with uh jmu athletics and we're gonna go ahead and wrap this one up and i will just say that I am Shane Metlin, and thank you for listening once again to the Purple and Bold podcast. See you in a week when we are actually talking about game week. Thanks for listening.